Shabbat Shalom. There were two, and probably more, very provocative and thought-provoking events in the Jewish world this past week. One was the banning and fining of Donald Sterling, the nominally Jewish, and no, he was not a member of my congregation when I was in Los Angeles. I've been asked that question a few times. The nominally Jewish owner of the Los Angeles Clippers basketball team for his grotesque and racist remarks that he made to his mistress about publicly associating with African Americans. He didn't want her to do that or to bring them to what he claimed his basketball games. She recorded his disgusting tirade and then sold that recording to the television uh, tabloid show TMZ. The world then heard him in all of his exposed truth, and the NBA threw him out of basketball, fined him $2.5 million, the maximum fine allowed by their constitution, and may very well force him to sell the basketball team. The second troubling and provocative thing to happen in the Jewish world this past week was the vote by the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations to not allow J Street, the left-leaning Israel advocacy group, a seat at the table when they applied for membership to the conference this past year. These two events would seem to be unrelated. In Sterling's case, a longtime racist is caught on tape being who he really is. And as for J Street, the old guard of Jewish communal organizations voted to maintain the status quo, turning a deaf ear to the calls from younger Jews to expand the dialogue on Israel. There's nothing new here. Racists are often the last to realize that they are racists, and I don't think Don Sterling has realized it yet, and institutions are slow to change, even when change is all around them. As we say in Talmud, Ein chadash tachat hashamayim, there is nothing new under the sun. Did you know that came from the Talmud, by the way? And while there may, in fact, be nothing new here, two important lessons rise from these seemingly unrelated events. The first lesson is that nothing is private anymore. And maybe we thought we knew that, but Donald Sterling's case gives it a whole new meaning. In Donald Sterling's case, while I find his comments atrocious and deeply offensive, I am also deeply troubled that a private conversation between two people can be surreptitiously recorded can be surreptitiously recorded, and for what he said in private, he is fined, banned, and might be forced to divest himself of his ownership of his team. I do not defend in any way his horrendous and hateful remarks, but I do think that he has a right to say them in the privacy of his own home. If we start prosecuting people, and Donald Sterling was prosecuted not only in the court of public opinion, but by the NBA commissioner and by his office for what they say in private to other people, especially when those comments, however distasteful they are, 
are comments that don't lead to any violent action or conspiracy in some way against the government, I'm thinking now of the NSA and wiretaps and all of those things, then where does that leave freedom of speech and freedom of thought? It was Evelyn Beatrice Hall writing in her biography of Voltaire who said and penned the phrase, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. A phrase that has been used by legal scholars and opinions and jurists now for generations to defend the right of free speech. Like it or not, Donald Sterling has a right to be a racist idiot in the privacy of his own home. And even so, we should defend his right to the death to be that racist idiot that he is. Just as each of us has a right to be in our own private opinions and thoughts, many of which others too would find abhorrent and indefensible. And if we are not prepared for that, then otherwise let us be prepared to let loose the thought police and grant them the right to determine which of our private utterances, even those which we view as innocent or taken out of context, can be leveraged to take away our jobs, our possessions, not to mention our reputations. The second lesson, which is really related to the first, is that the quaint notion that there is a firm dividing line between internal community dissent and external public debates in the Jewish community is an absolute fallacy. There is no privacy anymore, and in regard to Jewish communal life, there never has been. And that's a good thing. Judaism has never kept its debates, be they between Moses and Korach, or Hillel and Shammai, or Ben-Gurion and Menachem Begin, behind closed doors. Even if the doors were closed, the windows were open. By which I mean that we were fooling no one in trying to hide the reality that we are not monolithic in our opinion in any way. We're not monolithic in anything that we do as a community, certainly not in our opinions or approach to what is in the best interest of the Jewish people or the Jewish state. That old punchline to the joke that nobody can remember, two Jews, three opinions, it's funny because it's so true. We ourselves as individuals are often of two minds and multiple opinions on the same subject. What I find tragic and discouraging about the vote by the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations, and by the way, the vote was 22 against allowing J Street in and 17 in favor of allowing J Street in, with no accounting for the size of the organizations that were voting. The reform movement and the conservative movement voted in favor of letting J Street in. They represented clearly the largest percentage of Jews around the world, but they just cast one vote. And two-thirds two was needed of the majority in order to grant admittance. What I find tragic is that not only are we lying to ourselves to think that the views of J Street don't matter to the larger Jewish community, they clearly do. They are representative of tens of thousands of young Jews, mostly millennials, those born after 1980, between 1980 and 1995. We clearly realize that they do matter. So much so, particularly to those young Jews that I just mentioned, who have grown disenchanted with the Israel-can-do-no-wrong position 
of many of those 22 organizations that voted to keep J Street out. What is so troubling and tragic is that we fear the reality of their position. We don't legitimize J Street by including them at the table, which I think was their fear. Rather, we delegitimize all of those major Jewish organizations by not including J Street at the table. I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Let them come to the table. Let J Street come. And if it is the will of the majority, let them be shouted down. Let them bring their resolutions and have them fail in a democratic process. What are we scared of? If the major organizations fear that these resolutions, these opinions of such a left-leaning dovish group as J Street might pass, if they fear that they might gain support, then what the conference really fears is exactly what J Street is saying, that they are out of touch and no longer representative of the people that they, as presidents of the major Jewish organizations, claim to be so representative of. Now, all of that is politics and pop culture. But we can gain, I think, some perspective on these two issues. The issue one being what we say in private that becomes public, and issue two being what we say publicly that we want to keep private. From this week's Torah portion, which is Parshat Amor, the word literally means speak. And it is in the book of Leviticus. In addition to the key commandments in this parsha relating to priests and the temple and the food offerings that they consume, and more relates the story, it's a fascinating story, of a half-Israelite young man, his father was Egyptian, who fights with a full Israelite because, and listen to this, you couldn't write this in terms of its connectivity, its juxtaposition to the stories of the day, who fights with a full Israelite because he is not allowed into the camp. He's not allowed within the tent, a place at the table. The half-Israelite, not being allowed in, his mother's Jewish, his father isn't, profanes the name of God. He speaks out against God in a blasphemous way. We can only imagine what he says, because we don't know what he says. But God instructs Moses that the man is then to be stoned to death. And the sentence is carried out. An interesting and very important aside to this little narrative moment in a Torah portion filled with all these priestly things that we would almost disregard is that the man has a good reason to be angry at God and at God's law. According to Midrash, his mother, who is named, by the way, in this Torah portion, she is the only woman named in the entire book of Leviticus. Shlomit Bat Divri is her name. Shlomit, the daughter of the person that spoke. Bat Divri. The woman named, her husband was that Hebrew slave that was killed by the Egyptian taskmaster in the story of Moses. Do you remember that story? We read it during Passover. Moses comes upon this Hebrew slave being beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster, beaten to death, sees nobody there, and then Moses steps up and kills the Egyptian taskmaster. And it's that incident that leads Moses to realize that he's got to flee from Egypt where he encounters God in the desert, comes back, frees the Jewish people. Why was the man beaten to death? Does anybody know? 
I'm going to tell you. Because this man discovered that Egyptian taskmaster had raped his wife, Shlomit, Bat Divri. And he confronted him. And they got into a conflict, a battle, and the man killed him. And Moses, knowing this, sought vengeance for the killed Hebrew slave. The boy who was now sentenced to death for blaspheming God's name was the result, was the issue of that incident of rape of his mother, Shlomit. He has a reason to be angry. Cast out by the Jewish community, literally denied a place at the table in the camp, he has good reason to be angry, to blame God, and to blame Judaism. This young man does not die for any act that he performs. Rather, his words prove offensive to God and to God's holiness and to Israel. The Torah doesn't reveal how many Israelites hear the condemned man profane God's name, but he makes his statement publicly, different from Donald Sterling. And his words could have incited some or even many Israelites in the camp to join him in rejecting God, and so the biblical way you do things is they punish him to death. It's harsh, but not unprecedented by biblical standards. But we don't live by biblical justice anymore. And thank goodness that we don't. If we did, many of us would be stoned for what we wear, what we eat, what we do on a daily basis. So let's be honest. Sterling's remarks were never intended to be made public or to sway anyone but his girlfriend. And the opinions of J Street agree with them or disagree with them Keeping them out of the room will not silence them. In fact, it might only provoke them to scream louder so that they can be heard through the closed doors, through the shut windows. This should lead us to consider two ideas. First, whatever we say, even when private, can come back to haunt us. And those of us that live on the internet know that words never die. Second, we no longer enjoy any comprehensive freedom to express ourselves in the world we live in, including our prejudices or our opinions. Who knows when we're being recorded and by whom, and the means to air recorded comments, they abound. If private words are made public, we may be condemned not for what we've done, but for what we've said. Our deepest feelings, misguided as they may be, can be used against us. But by the same token, who has the power to silence our public opinions? In this age of the internet and email and 24-hour news, there is no mute button on what people say. You can't shut people down. We can cover our ears, but people are still talking. Only we can't hear them, we can't hear what they're saying, and so they'll scream louder. I make no excuses for Donald Sterling, and I also believe that Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, did what was right for the NBA. But someone recorded a private conversation without Sterling's permission and then used it against him. And there is something wrong with that. I defend the right of the Conference of Presidents to vote in a democratic way on who gets to sit at the table. 
But they are misguided if they think that their vote will silence J Street. And I think that's what they think. The only people who will not hear J Street are those around the table, those who perhaps need to hear a difference of opinion the most. The nameless young man in this week's Parsha is silenced. He's brutally silenced. No one can hear him anymore because they kill him for what he says. But 3,000 years later, we are still talking about him. We're still talking about what he said. Words live on longer than people do. Be careful in what you say, our rabbis caution, because everything is heard somewhere. You can close your eyes, but you cannot close your ears. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you do this, you can still hear something. So sometimes the best idea is simply close your mouth. Shabbat Shalom.